This morning we read from Isaiah 15.5 to 16.5. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zor, to Iglath, Shilishia. For at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping on the road to Horonaim. They raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimron are a desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches to Iglaim. Her wailing reaches to Beer Elim. For the waters of Debon are full of blood. For I will bring upon Debon even more. A lion for those of Moab who escape. For the remnant of the land. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. From Selah. By way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice. Make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Thanks, David. Good morning. When I was in college... My junior year in 1978, I had the opportunity to do an overseas studies program. And since I didn't have any language other than English, I went to England. It was great. You know, I thought, hey, piece of cake, same language, you know, Western culture, uh, it's going to be great. No problem at all. You know what it was? It was, it was a wonderful experience as I was learning there. But really interesting, after a while... I began to feel more and more out of place. And I was surprised by that. It was interesting, just little things. You'd go to the store, and the stores were completely different. They didn't have big department stores like we have. And I needed some notebook paper to fit in my regular 8.5 by 11 notebook. They didn't have that size paper. They had 8 by 10 paper, and it didn't fit in my notebook. And there were thing after thing like that that were just enough different that I felt out of place. There were plenty of times where, though they spoke English, it may as well have been a foreign language because I couldn't understand what they were saying. <laughs> the food was different and didn't really agree with me that well. And the craziest thing is they drive on the wrong side of the road. And when you're here and you're going to cross the street, you know, you know what to do. You look to the left. And if there's no cars coming, you step out. You do that in England, you're dead. Because <laughs> the cars are coming this way. <laughs> See, I began to experience a, a mild form of it, but I began to experience a certain amount of culture shock. This was a place where I didn't quite fit. 
Some things were familiar, but a lot of things weren't, and it just began to feel more and more out of place over time. I think many of us as Christians in America today are feeling that way. Just being in America. Things have changed around us enough where we used to feel really supported and free to just relax and live out our faith and it wasn't a problem. We felt affirmed in our faith in America and we felt like we had a lot of influence on what was going on around us. But now the world, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, has accelerated in its change around us. So we as Christians feel less and less at home. The world around us seems to be speaking a different language at times. We feel out of place. We feel like we don't fit. Christians are being pushed to the margins of society. It's as though the world has changed and now is driving on the wrong side of the road. In other words, we're experiencing a certain amount of culture shock. Now, the Bible says we should expect that. It says that we are strangers and aliens in this world, but we've had it pretty good, haven't we? (laughs) We've been pretty comfortable, but it's changed. And so there's this increasing sense of not feeling at home here. And what I'm finding is that a lot of us as Christians in America are responding with fear. Fear as to what else is going to happen. What other things are we going to lose? How are values going to continue to change where we feel like we don't fit? What is our place in America now? How should we respond to such a loss of power and influence in our culture? What do we do when we're feeling more and more like we're strangers and aliens in our own country? Well, the nation of Judah, I think, in the time of Isaiah, was feeling something very similar. Under Solomon and David, the nation of Israel had been powerful, probably the most influential and wealthy nation on earth under Solomon in particular. And people came from all over the world to hear his wisdom and to see his wealth and his might. But over the last 300 years since then, up to the time of Isaiah, the power and the influence of Israel had begun to shrink. They were now a small, beleaguered nation under constant threat from nations around them, under threat of extinction. And Judah was feeling afraid. They were struggling with God. We see it in a number of the prophets. We certainly see it in Isaiah, the sense of, God, what are you doing? Aren't we your people? If we're your people, why aren't you blessing us and giving us this influence? You're, you're taking away so much from us. Do you even care, God? And what does it mean now to trust you in a world where we feel less and less influence and we're getting pushed to the margins and people are driving on the wrong side of the road? That's our question for today as we look in this passage. And I think it's a wonderful passage that gives us four messages to help us understand what it means to live out our faith in this kind of world that we now find ourselves in. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible contemporary nature of your word. The words that were written some 2,700 years ago might apply directly to us today. Lord, use this to give us a new picture of your heart for us and for the nations. 
that we might be the people of God and live out our calling as strangers and aliens in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you just a little bit of background. Now, Judah is surrounded by enemies at this point. As you can see from the map, here's the kingdom of Judah, the yellow. To the north is the kingdom of Israel. Now, during Isaiah's time of prophesying, the northern kingdom was utterly wiped out. It was completely gone. But at this point, it may still be there. It may be gone. The kingdom of Assyria is way up north and encompassed a huge area and was expanding rapidly. But you can see the kingdom of Damascus and Aram here. Kingdom of Ammon, kingdom of Moab. We'll come back to that later. The Philistine states. And there's Edom and others around that. It was a very small, beleaguered nation surrounded by enemies who wanted nothing more than to destroy them. In our passage, there's oracles against Assyria and Philistia and Moab and Damascus and in the end, Judah. All of these nations were scary to Judah and had been longtime enemies of theirs. With such a threatening world, what was Judah to do? Well, we see in the scriptures that Judah was trying to survive. And in their fear of all these other nations around them, they began to make alliances with other nations to think, well, if we team up together, maybe we can defeat Assyria or maybe we can defeat Israel, who was out to destroy them or Aram. And so at various times they would make alliances with these other nations and it never worked out well. <laughs> I think this is similar to us, right? Uh, uh, Christians in America, we've in our fear, as we see things beginning to change, we've tried to make alliances in various ways with somebody we think can help us, someone in power, perhaps a political party or a candidate or certain business interests or whatever. We've we've looked for some way to make some kind of alliance so that we can deal with this fear and not and feel more secure. But God is challenging Judah, and I think it applies to us as well. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Or will you continue to look elsewhere for your security? So as I said, God gives them four messages in these oracles to the other nations to encourage them to keep trusting in God rather than other things in a threatening world. So let's look at these four messages. The first one is given in an oracle to Assyria in the end of chapter 14 or near the end, chapter, verses 24 through 27. And let me read part of that to you. Again, we're in chapter 14 of, of Isaiah, verse 26. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. God is speaking here in this oracle to Assyria. This is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts is purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? One verse before, verse 25. I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot. Now remember, Assyria was huge. They were cruel. They had never been defeated in battle since they were raised to power. They'd beaten everyone in their path. And Judah was this little nation and they were afraid. But God says, 
I'll break their yoke. I'll deal with Assyria. In fact, I'll do it right here on the mountain, on Zion, in Israel. I will defeat them. And what did God do? Well, we'll get to this before long, but let me read in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 33 and following. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, Jerusalem, or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast a siege mound against it. For I will defend, verse 35, this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So what did God do to this mighty nation? Verse 36, and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh, where his own sons murdered him. (laughs) It was the end of the reign of Assyria and their power. You see, Judah was afraid of this mighty nation, and God says, trust in me, I'm much more powerful. Don't you get it? We see that all through the scriptures, don't we? Uh, God dealing with, at the time, the most mighty nation was Egypt when Israel was enslaved there. But God said, I can deal with that. Raise up Moses, 10 plagues, (laughs) wipes out the whole army of Egypt in the Red Sea. God says, guys, I'm a lot more powerful than anything you think you're afraid of out there. So please... Trust me, you see, God's plans cannot be thwarted. That's message number one. God says over and over again in this little oracle, God's plans, God's plans, God's purpose, God's purpose cannot be thwarted. He will fulfill it. And it doesn't matter how big the nation may seem. You need not be afraid. Think about Nebuchadnezzar sometime later when when the nation of Israel is in exile in Babylon And King Nebuchadnezzar gets proud and arrogant and Daniel gets a message that says, oh, yeah, God's going to humble you. And he did. For seven years, he became uh, a fool. He went insane for seven years and was eating grass like the animals. And then after seven years, he came back and said, I know who the real God is now. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he was humbled before God. See, God, God can deal with the nations. God can deal with what's out there. God can deal with ISIS. God can deal with who's ever out there. And we can trust him to do that. So why are we afraid of a world that, yes, I understand they're threatening us. I understand they're against us. I understand they're driving on the wrong side of the road and it's throwing us off. But if you look at what God's saying, why are we afraid? It's like we're afraid of the fifth grade. You know, you're in fifth grade and there's the bully on the playground. And you just think, oh, no, I got to I got to watch out for him. And I oh, know, you know, I better get on his good side. And we're we're doing all we can to get on the side of this bully because we're afraid. And then a thousand force of special forces, fully armed comes to confront the bully. (laughs) Absurd, right? But that's kind of what God's saying. Look, I'm like the special forces and you're afraid of a little bully on the fifth grade playground? I'm so much bigger than that. I'm so much greater. God and you are always a majority. (laughs) You need not fear. 
God, God will always carry out his plans. His plans cannot be thwarted. We need to remember that. Second message he gives Judas in this next brief oracle about Philistia is that God is a refuge for his people. He says, I'm going to judge Philistia. And then in verse 30 of chapter 14, he says this, and the firstborn of the poor will graze and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your, your root Philistia with famine and your remnant it will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you. For smoke comes out of the north, and there's no straggler in his ranks. That's Assyria coming down to judge Philistia. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? Here's the message to Judah. The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. You see, the message that God wants Judah to hear in this oracle is that God is a refuge for his people when life seems scary. He will always cover us under his wings. He will be a fortress around his people. He will build a wall. It does say we'll be afflicted. That's part of life on earth. That's actually part of God's plan. But in your affliction, where will you turn to God or somewhere else? He will be a refuge. We can always run to him. He is our rock of refuge. I used to fight fires. And whenever you fight fires, forest fires, you've got to always make sure what your escape route is, where you will go to be safe. My nephew was fighting a big fire in California and the crew boss said, okay, our way of escape, our place of escape is this big rock that was about 40 feet in diameter. And he says, if there's any flare-up, we're running to that rock. Well, it looked like there was a little flare-up, and they all ran to the rock, and they're all standing on it. But it died down. There was no problem. Later, they went back to the crew, to the fire line, and they're digging, and then it seemed to flare up again. They ran to the rock. Nothing happened. They went back on the fire line and then it started to flare up again. They ran to the rock and the entire mountain became engulfed in in flames. But they were standing on the rock and the fire burned all around them, but they were safe. To me, that's such a good picture of what God wants for us to run to the rock. (laughs) He's our refuge. Why would we look for anything else? Why would we run elsewhere? So the question for us is, for you and me, do you run to him when life gets scary? Do you remind yourself of his control of all things, that his plans can't be thwarted, that he loves you, that he's promised that all things will work together for your good? Or do you start scrambling like Judah and start making alliances with something you think feels secure until Finally, you reach the end and none of that works. And finally, then you turned to the Lord. So often in my counseling, I I find people that are scrambling, like the man who came to me and said, my wife says she's leaving me. You know, give me give me some things I can do. But I could see clearly what God was calling him to do was to trust him, to rest in him and to begin to be the man was caught that God was calling him to be rather than somehow try to control her actions. But rather trust in God, be God's man and leave her to the Lord. 
So the second message that it's very important we get is that God is a refuge for his people. So let's turn to him when life feels out of place, when life feels scary, when the world is driving on the wrong side of the road. The third message comes in the next two chapters. It's a long oracle about Moab. God wants us, this is the message, God wants us to be a refuge for the world. I want to show the map again just to give you a picture. Again, a reminder of Moab here. And David read a good portion of of what was the oracle to Moab. And it's a bunch of place names. David did a good job reading all these difficult place names. But if you follow the place names, they go from north to south. You see, it's describing the invasion of Assyria coming down through this whole area and invading Moab. And Moab is beginning to flee. They are fleeing from the Assyrians and they're coming further and further south over to the border of Judah. It's devastating for them. They are fleeing for their lives. I want to read a little bit of that again. Again, this is chapter 15, starting in the first couple verses. An oracle concerning Moab, because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night. Moab is undone, because Kur of Moab is laid waste in a night. Moab is undone. He's gone to the temple and to Dibon, to the high places to weep over Nebo and over Medaba. Moab wails on every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. It's, it's a picture of utter devastation. That God has brought utter devastation through the Assyrians. Now, I want to show you a picture of Syrian refugees. These are just women and children. But as you look at this picture, listen to the description of Moab. Verse 5, my heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives, could be translated refugees, flee to Zoar, to Eglath Shelashiah. For at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping on the road to Horonayim. They raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. Notice verse 7 in this picture. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they've laid up, they carry away over the brook of willows. Everything they have that they can carry, this is it. That's all they have now for their lives. And as they go, it says, verse 9, I will bring upon Dibon even more a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land, even as they flee They're being pursued, and life is hard and difficult. They're broken. They're crushed. They're attacked on the way. Uh, Some of you may have seen a PBS special I saw this week about refugees, and, and following them, actually, the cameramen from the very beginning where they're still in their own land and they talk about, yeah, we can't wait to get to Europe and we're going to get there. These were Syrians and Afghanis and Mali from from Africa and they were trying to get to what they saw as the promised land. And then the cameraman follows them as they get to the shore and they have to pay smugglers and some of them get ripped off and it's terrifying. And then they end up in a refugee camp and they can't get across the border and All these things happen. It's so difficult and they get things stolen from them and it's finally get to where they think is the promised land and several of them are not granted asylum. It's a difficult world today. As we've heard, 65 million people are displaced from their homes. 
21 million have had to leave their country to go to another country as refugees. Moab itself is the root of the Arabs today. For chapter 16, it says they've come to the border of Israel now. Show the next picture and you can see they're at the border now of Israel. Notice what it says in chapter 16. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Salah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Maybe if we send a tribute lamb, they'll let us in. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Now, this is a quote. These next couple of verses is a quote of what Moab is saying then to Israel. Give counsel. Grant justice. Make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. They're crying out for help. They're bringing a lamb, a peace offering, hoping that they will be sheltered from the enemy. Now, I think a common human response at this, and this happens throughout the world today, it happens in many of our hearts, is, wait a minute, <laughs> you guys are longtime enemies of ours. Why in the world would we want to let you into our country and have access? That sounds scary to me. I don't want to let you in. We need to protect ourselves and our families. And you know what? That's true. That's an accurate thing. We need to be careful. I get all that. I get all that. We see a lot of that fear and self-protection in our current refugee crisis. But when I read this passage, I have to ask myself, but how does God respond? And how does he want us as the people of God to respond? It's very interesting in this whole two chapters, this oracle to Moab, how you get a hint at God's heart. Notice chapter 15, verse 5. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar. Now, wait a minute. Who's speaking? My heart cries out for Moab? Well, in the context, it has to be either Isaiah speaking for God or God himself, but they're crying out. Notice over in chapter 16, verse 9. Therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibma as he looks at what's going on with Moab and the destruction. He weeps. Who is this who weeps? We go on. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliala, for over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased and joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in the vineyards, no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out wine on the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Oh, it's God. It's God who weeps over what's happened. He caused it, but he also weeps over the pain. Verse 11, therefore, my guts, my inner parts moan like a leer for Moab and my inmost self for Kir Haraseth. You see God's heart for these refugees from Moab. His heart is broken and he longs for them to have life. And so notice verses four and five of chapter 16, when they come and they say, let us in, please. What is God's response? 
Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot is vanished from the land. In other words, when God will bring peace at some point, then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. What's he describing there? Messiah, right? Jesus, the throne of Jesus, the new kingdom come. And so what God is saying is, Moab, you're in desperate need. You know what? I am raising up Messiah, a king, a new kingdom, Jesus, and you are welcome. The loving kindness is being offered to you. The faithfulness is being offered to you. You can be welcomed in as one of the people of God. Now, we've seen God's love for Moab before, haven't we? Anybody ever read the book of Ruth? (laughs) In the book of Ruth, Naomi and Elimelech become refugees. They go to Moab because there's a drought in Israel. They stay there a while and then they come back to Israel. And when they come back, they bring Ruth with them. Ruth is now an outcast from her own country and she comes to Israel, and what happens? She ends up marrying into Boaz's family, marries Boaz, becomes the great grandmother of King David, and the great, 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 I can't say enough greats, grandmother of Jesus himself. A Moabite. God's already shown his love for all nations, and in particular, Moab. It's a beautiful picture, I think of what God has for the world and what the message is to Judah and to you and me is that, yes, we are to go to Jesus as a refuge for us. God is a refuge for his people, but now he's expanding that and saying, and as you trust in me, as you find refuge in me, now you, the kingdom of God, the people of God, become a refuge for the world for the outcasts of the world, for the broken of the world, for those who are afflicted and needy. We are now the refuge for the world, especially those who are displaced. Now, I love the fact we have a great refugee ministry here through Nick and Laura Armstrong, and it's wonderful. But I I think the application goes broader beyond refugees. I think it includes that. But I think it's we are to be the refuge for the world in a world in which everyone is broken in some sense. Everyone's been displaced from what God created them to be. There's dysfunctional homes. There's divorces. There's those who have had abortions. There's those who have been sexually and physically abused. This world is a broken world and people are dying and displaced and whether they realize it or not, are crying out and they're standing at the border and they're saying, please, is there a place I can find peace? Is there a place where I can be covered and be set free? Is there a shelter for me as well? And brothers and sisters, I think the message to you and me is that God wants us to be a refuge to the world. Don't live by fear and self-protection. Trust me as your refuge, God is saying. And then welcome the physical and emotional 
outcasts of the world with open arms so they too can know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's message three. The fourth message comes in chapter 17. We don't have a lot of time to spend on it, but it's an oracle towards Judah itself. And in this chapter, it talks about how God is gleaning the nation, how he's working them down to a remnant, how he's bringing discipline into their lives. You see, part of what happens when the world gets more difficult to live in and people are driving on the wrong side of the road and you, and you feel out of place is that God is gleaning or disciplining his people. He's gleaning us so that we will let go of the other things we've trusted in and trust him. So we need to understand what God's doing. Part of what he's doing, I think, right now with us, the church in America, is he's disciplining us. He's gleaning us so that we can be more of the people, the church that he's called us to be. Because his passion, his desire for us is that we would move from verse 10 of chapter 17. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow, etc., your harvest won't happen. He's moving them from that to verse 7. In that day, when discipline happens, when God gleans us, in that day, man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He'll no longer look on the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. God's passion for you and for me is that we would let go of these other things we've trusted in and put our faith in him in a scary, insecure world. So the question for us, for you, for me, and for Judah in this passage is, will we gaze on him? Will we look on him? Will we trust in him as truly the one whose plans cannot be thwarted, who is a refuge For his people, we can always go to him. But who wants us to be a refuge for the world? You see, that's how God wants us to respond in a world that is getting more and more uncomfortable and where we feel more and more like aliens and strangers, like refugees (laughs) in a world where the world increasingly is driving on the wrong side of the road. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you have a heart for us to trust you more and you are working life to help us trust you more and you give us encouragement through your word that we might trust you more. We confess, Lord, it's so easy for us to look elsewhere to other people, other powers, to money, to things, to try to find some sense of security in an insecure world. But Lord, may you use this passage, may you remind us in the weeks ahead that you are our refuge and you call us to be a refuge for the world. And may we be the people of God in this uncertain world. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.